0: Well, I hope your uh, breakout sessions were edifying, beneficial. I'm thankful for this uh, seminar and we uh, hopefully see the uh, purpose of prayer in the life of the Christian as this uh, seminar continues. In this opening session, Corey helped us to see that prayer is communing with God. And then a little bit ago in, in his uh, breakout, he hit on something that I'm going to be uh, expounding a little bit more deeper, um, but I thought it was great that the, the Puritan, John Preston, uh, he had an, a, a hindrance to prayer, a list of hindrances to prayer, and one of them that I wrote down is ignorance of the nature of God. So before lunch, I want us to think about prayer in light of this. About how God works in our lives through it. In other words, I want us to contemplate. I want us to to think about how God's actions are connected to our prayers. How his being is connected to our prayer and our communion with him. And and, and we might ask several questions. We had some of these questions come up in uh, Corey's session on Puritans. Does prayer change change? God's people does prayer change things does prayer change God and if prayer does change things how does prayer change things and if prayer changes God's people then how are they changed and so when we pray do our prayers change God's mind and thus things change? Or when God hears our prayers, does God moved to compassion and therefore act in our lives? So the, why would we even consider these questions? I'm going to operate here though. There's an assumption that most of you, if you're here at this church, at this seminar, you affirm God's sovereignty. And even if you are a denier of uh, election we all pray, and therefore we all assume God's sovereignty in our life, or we wouldn't pray. But, but those of us who affirm and God's sovereignty and, and his sovereignty over all things, we've probably thought about you know, these questions. Uh, is my prayer making a difference? Does God hear me? Is he concerned with me? And so, my hope today is to address these crucial questions. In case you're wondering, though, I thought this was a practical Christian living seminar. This seems theoretical, theological, not practical. I would say theology is practical, where our right beliefs, our orthodoxy, is meant to result in right practice or orthopraxy that leads to the praise of God, the glory of God, doxology. So understanding theologically how our prayer functions in the lives of Christians is really of utmost importance, is extremely practical. So my hope today is that as we explore these questions that most every Christian has or has had concerning prayer, we won't only have a clear understanding of who God is, but that we will be brought to a greater confidence as we kneel before the throne of grace and we pray. But before we begin, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we we come to you this morning in the name of Christ, by your Spirit, and ask that you would help us this morning, that you would help us to behold your glory, to submit to your will in prayer, to be changed, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Father, would you be with me this morning as I speak on such of your ways, oh Father, how could, how could man, how could I, a finite creature, speak of you? You are, you are our Creator. You're my Creator. And, and Father, we, we tremble. We're fearful of dishonoring you. I'm fearful of dishonoring you, misrepresenting you. Oh God, would you guard my lips and strip anything that is untrue from the ears of the listeners this morning? But Father, we ask that you would plant your truths deep in us, that we might be drawn passionately to pray. That we would be drawn to passionately pray and to be changed into the likeness of Christ. Thank you, O God, for your mercy. Thank you, O God, for this seminar on prayer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to rightly understand the effect that prayer has in the life of the Christian... We must first seek to understand who God is in relation to prayer. We need to contemplate him. We need to think about him. Although we could never really fully comprehend God. But we have faith that is seeking understanding. And so when we think about whether or not prayer changes God's mind or changes things or changes us. We need to start with a doctrine of impassibility. Impassibility. Divine impassibility is that doctrine that teaches that not only is God unchanging, but he cannot suffer change. In other words, God cannot be changed by anything or anyone, either from himself, outside of himself, neither his creation nor his creatures can affect change in or on God. More simply, the doctrine of divine impassibility means that God cannot be Changed or moved by anything or anyone. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter two, paragraph one says, the Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, Parts or passions. And we all affirm that God is most pure spirit, that he is invisible, that he is without body, without parts. But that last word, passions. And that word passions is related to this doctrine of divine impassibility. And often when people hear that God is without passions, they tend to think either that God is a stoic. That is in feeling, he lacks warmth. Or they think that God's emotions are are like us. Like how we have emotions, but he just isn't tainted by sin. And so we often come to these conclusions because we misunderstand what it means that God is without passions. And the word passions in this context comes from a a Greek and Latin term that means to suffer. James Dolezal says that passion means to suffer, to submit, to undergo, to experience, or to endure. It has the sense of that of being acted on or receiving the action of another within oneself. In other words, the doctrine of impassibility means that God cannot suffer and change due to that suffering. Some articulate this to mean that God doesn't have mood swings like we do. We stub our toes, we feel pain, we get angry, we suffer change. First, as the confession states, we don't believe that God has a body or parts. God has no toe, but he also is without passions, where he's not provoked to anger like men. In other words, when you or I change in an emotional state, when we stub our toe, we're, we're, we're suffering change. That is, something outside of ourselves has been the cause or initiation of our suffering. Something has been causing us to move, to change in the state that we were, to go into a different state. James Dolzon speaks of the same thing with falling in love. He, he says that, you know, when, when I behold the loveliness of my wife, I am moved to love her. I suffer change. I fall in love. He says this is what sometimes they refer to as having a crush. This is what it means in some sense to suffer. In the sense of impassibility. That is is how God has created us. We are creatures. He has created us changeable in this way. We have not been created impassable, but passable. We have been created in a way that we experience change or how we suffer change in ourselves. Stephen, Stephen dubey says that passion is a motion of the soul that occurs when a subject is acted upon and drawn to or repulsed by something or someone. So when we as humans who are passable are either drawn to something or repulsed by something, dubey says that there is a new disposition In the will. In other words, we change. We are passable. And here he continues and he says the affection of love is a basic inclination or attraction towards some object. Hatred is opposed to love and is a basic disinclination or repulsion from some object that is caused by the evil or the harmfulness of the object. Desire. It's a longing or seeking after a good thing that is not present. If the desired good is perceived to be difficult to avoid, good is perceived to be unattainable, then the affection is called despair. Flight is a repulsion from evil or a harmful thing. If evil is perceived to be difficult to avoid and unsurmountable, the affection is called fear. Joy is a peaceful rest or a satisfaction in a good thing that's already obtained. And sorrow is an aversion to an evil thing that is already present. And finally, anger is sorrow with despair or hope to punish wrongdoing. To clarify a little bit, as an example, many of the ladies that I'm related to, wife, daughter, sister, mother, feel a disinclination or repulsion towards a particular object called a roach. (laughs) Just the thought of a a roach creeping across the floor, or worse, flying roaches, elicits a type of disinclination or repulsion from that object. Now that is hatred. But if that same roach crawled over the foot, or flew around the house, around the head, your disposition would rapidly change to fear. Which Duby says is when an evil is perceived to be difficult to avoid So you get the point. Human emotions are passable. Each of us are reactionary and, and can be moved to suffer change in our emotional states or our dispositions of soul by another object or person. When a man perceives the beauty and the loveliness of a woman, he falls in love. His disposition is affected and he suffers change from a state of not loving this particular woman to loving this particular woman. And then when my wife and daughter and mother and sister perceive the evil and vileness of a roach, they suffer change and move towards repulsion, fear. But God is not like us. He is not passable. He is impassable. So God does not love us because he is moved to love us by our loveliness. He is neither attracted to our intellect We're impressed by our good works. God's love is impassable, not subject to suffering change or being moved by anything or anyone. Sam Renahan writes, God's love is an unchanging perfection. Mercy in God is not like human mercy. Our mercy is heart misery toward one another. But we are more prone to be moved by a picture of puppies and kittens than we are to help our neighbor. God, on the other hand, without the passion of mercy, without the heart misery of human feeling, is the God who helps the helpless. He is the one who helps those who can give absolutely nothing back to him, who do not deserve his help. He is truly merciful. So God is not fickle like us. He is not passable like us. God is impassable. And and would you really even want a God who changes? If God was changed by his creation, by us, and he would constantly be subject to change, he would move in and out of love and in and out of mercy and in and out of compassion. Wrathful at 12 o'clock, patient at 1 o'clock. God would suffer all these changes all the time. Now, How could you count on a God who changes? His love would be dependent upon the moment-to-moment life, lives of his creatures. So as we go about our day fighting sin, falling into sin, walking in righteousness, struggling to trust God and obey, God would be changing in love toward us based upon our lovableness, not that we have any outside of Christ. And we would be saying about God, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. And then, really some sense our Christian walk becomes performance-based. We're trying hard to get God's attention, trying hard to get God's compassion and love on our side. But this God is a God who is most to be pitied if God is a changeable God. The God of the Bible is immutable and impassable. The God of the Bible neither changes nor is subject to change based upon his creatures. Augustine writes, You, Lord God, lover of souls, show mercy far more purely than we can, and in a way free from all taint, Because no sorrow can wound you. Which of us is sufficient for this? Now at this point we come to some objections. There's numerous verses in the Bible that seem to portray God as suffering or changing or repenting or relenting from disaster that was just a few moments ago intended toward the the sinner. Genesis 6.6 And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Zechariah 1, 15 and 16, And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So what are we to do with such passages that seem to illustrate the point that God suffers change, and by suffering change, he responds and then acts in the lives of his creatures, his creation. Some theologians wrongly claim that suffering is an essential component of God's love. One author errantly says, were God incapable of suffering in any respect, and therefore in an absolute sense, then he would be incapable of love. But that's not the biblical view that we have here. In the whole biblical picture. So we have is numbers. We have Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then even again in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. In James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So in one sense, in the first set of verses that we read, it seems that God's actions change and that he does regret or he does repent. But there's other biblical texts, like the ones we just read, that, that tells us of God's being, of his character. That he doesn't have regret, that he is not like man, that he does not change. That his mind is not not changed. That with God there's no variation or shadow due to change. Renahan says that, think about the two statements in 1 Samuel. He says, on the one hand, God is said to have regret. And on the other hand, he is said to not have regret, or to... To not regret, which of the two statements receives priority? Well, well, what is the reason given in 1 Samuel 15 for why God does not regret or have regret? The reason given is that he is not man. Because God is a different being, not a man. Certain things that are true about man cannot be true about God. Passages that tell us about God's being or nature take priority over passages that describe God's actions. So we have passages in the Bible that describe God as repenting or relenting from disaster or judgment. But we also have scriptures that tell us that God is not man, that he should change his mind, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that there is no shadow of turning in God. This is what is called accommodative language, that God speaks to us in language that we can understand. Van Mastryk writes, We see God as it were from his back and not his face. As if through a mirror, as if in an enigma. God in his word conveys this knowledge to us as if by lisping to us as infants. So God speaks to his creatures in a way that accommodates our finite minds. This is his method. And so when we speak about God, as we contemplate him, it's important that we speak of him in the method and manner that he has given us. And it's also important that as we consider the language that we use to describe God, whether it's English or Spanish or Russian or French or Arabic, that none of this language can ever fully and adequately convey God's majesty. There are no words that you or I could say that could fully express the infinite glory of God. Reinhard writes, we can no more contain God in our language than you can contain God, contain the ocean in a thimble. But that's our job really as as creatures is to strive to know the creator. It's a task of not just a theologian, but of every Christian. That faith is seeking understanding to, to know God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. So this is our task today. So if we were to ask the question here today, does prayer change God? Does prayer change God's mind? No. Prayer does not change God or change his mind. God is immutable. His will is immutable. That means his will cannot be changed. He can't change. We read earlier that God is not man, that he should lie. He's not a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? However, some might say, if God is immutable and impassable, unchanging and cannot be made to change, then doesn't that make God a stoic? Unfeeling, not warm, like a static rock with no emotions whatsoever. Dolezal explains the views of those who would oppose God's unchanging nature. He says, Those who reject that man cannot change God will say, If God cannot be moved in any way, then how can he genuinely relate to us, care for us, delight in us? How can we have an authentic personal relationship with him and he with us if there is no give and take? The burning question seems to be does the world really matter to God? Dolezal is right. That, that, that ultimate question in people's minds is often, does God really care? For them, for God to be unchanging and sovereign is to make God a Stoic. But if you know anything about that term, even as it's used in language today, to call someone a Stoic, it, it's it's not a good thing. And when someone refers to God as a Stoic, they really mean that He's just not caring. He's he's just indifferent to anything that's happening outside of himself. That's really the farthest thing from the truth. In the first and second century, Stoic philosopher Epictetus argued that one's personal happiness is promoted through virtue. And by guarding one's will or one's volition or one's actions from any outside influence, we attain happiness. The Stoic didn't want to be enticed by riches. He didn't want to be compelled to action by those people around them. They made decisions based upon their own moral virtues, their moral code, if you will. And their their goal was to guard their will and their actions from any outside influence that that they could act in line with their virtues, that they could uphold their moral code. William O. Stevens articulates this stoic thought when he writes, The stoic who risks her life, her own life, to rescue her drowning child, therefore, does so not because her child's life is a good that demands her protection, but because the protection of one's child is the proper functions of a parent. And the performance of one's proper functions is necessary for pre- preserving the right condition of one's volition in being happy. Thus, she seeks and achieves her own good in performing her proper function, protecting her child. And because of the nature of things in doing so, she secures the good of another, the child's welfare. In other words, the Stoics act to save a drowning child is really a self-volition to uphold the proper function and virtue of a parent. According to Stevens, the Stoic is supposed to view her own body, even her son's. Thus, the Stoic avoids any act stemming from an experience of suffering. By regarding externals as value neutral. For the Stoic self-volition, your will, is paramount. So when we talk about these things, about God's sovereignty, God's unchangeable nature, there's a tendency to project Stoicism back onto God. Some might say to believe in God as sovereign and unchanging is to believe a Stoic God is that he's without care or concern. To answer this accusation, Thomas Winandy writes, one should not be misled into thinking that God's immutability is like the immutability of a rock, only more so. What God and rocks appear to have in common is only the fact that they do not change. The reason for their unchangeableness is for polar opposite reasons. God is unchangeable not because he is inert, or static like a rock but for just the opposite reason he is so dynamic so active that no change can make him more active he is at pure and simple we also see this in scripture that God's love doesn't cease the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they renew every morning great is your faithfulness The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So God is not a stoic. God is not static like a rock. God is infinitely loving always. God's love is steadfast. It never ceases. God is unchangeable because he is always infinitely and perfectly acting. Puritan Stephen Charnock explains If God doth change, it must be either to a greater perfection than he had before or to a less. If to the better, he was not perfect, and so was not God. If to the worse, he will not be perfect, and so no longer God after that change. So for God to be God, he must be infinitely loving always, infinitely happy always. No one or no thing can invoke change in God, in other words, there is never a moment where God is not infinitely loving in all that He is or all that He does. If God were to increase in love, that means he wasn't perfect before and can not be God. If he decreased in love, then that means that he was no longer perfectly loved, and so he would not be God. God is perfect in love, His infinite love, because God is himself love. And so God cannot be moved or changed, but yet he himself creates all things. He moves all things. He sustains all things. And so he is what theologians call him, the unmoved mover. The one who cannot be changed, changes others. In Augustine's book, Confessions, which we have on the bookstall, is a beautiful book in the form of a a long prayer and, and, and kind of a biography of his life, but a long prayer to God. And he writes, "'What are you then, my God? "'What are you, I ask, but the Lord God? "'For who else is Lord except the Lord? "'And who is God if not our God? "'You are the most high, excellent, most powerful, "'omnipotent, supremely merciful, and supremely just, "'most hidden yet intimately present, "'infinitely beautiful and infinitely strong.'" Steadfast yet elusive, unchanging yourself though you control the change in all things, never new, never old, renewing all things yet wearing down the proud though they know it not, ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need, supporting and filling and guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, seeking although you lack nothing. You love without frenzy. You are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness. You grow angry yet remain tranquil. You alter your works but never your plan. How amazing is that? That we have a God who is not like us. We are creatures. He is the creator. Our existence is because we have been created. We remain alive Because God sustains our life. God is unlike us. We can change. What is more, we can be made to change. We can fall in love, be provoked to anger, be repulsed by a roach. One minute we can be calm and the next we can be enraged. But God is not so. He is the unmoved mover, the unchanging changer, the eternal creator and sustainer. And so when we think about prayer, we think about times when, when we passionately pray, when we, when we call out to God for things to change, for God to intervene in our lives, for God to act. And when we think about those times, that's when that question arises. If God doesn't change or change his mind when we pray, then what is actually happening when we pray? What is the point of prayer if my passionate plea does not change God's mind or does not move God to action? I titled this message, Passionate Prayer, Passionate Prayer and an Impassable God. There's a couple of reasons why I put this as the title. Both reasons have to do with how the word passionate and the phrase passionate prayer is defined. The first reason is that I wanted to explore how our passionate prayer, our intense and heartfelt pleading with God relates to a God who cannot be changed. One author writes, prayer does not change God's will, but rather carries it out as one of the secondary causes ordained to accomplish the divine plan. God wills that some things come about as a result of or in answer to our petitions, including our salvation. Both the prayer itself and the response are part of God's plan. God does not have to change His will in order to will a change, and God eternally ordains that some changes take place because of our prayers. Thus, even passionate prayer is a gift from God. God cannot be moved or changed, and He is not served by human prayers as though He needed anything. In Acts seventeen, Paul says that the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Romans eleven thirty six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So all of the answers to our prayers are from him and through him and to him. But also all of our prayers have been ordained to be from him and through him and to him. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So prayer is a gift of God designed to work in accordance with the counsel of his will. And here's the beauty of that. That means that because God is sovereign and unchanging in his will and unchanging in his being, and he can't be changed because of those truths, God will answer your prayers. First John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Remember, his will is unchanging. If we ask it according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The second reason this message is entitled Passionate Prayer in an Impassible God has to do with the idea of passions as we read in the 1689 London Confession. Remember, chapter 2 of the Confession states that God does not have body, parts, or passions. We talked about how passions in this context are are those changes that happen due to suffering. That it's more than a change in an emotional state, but that passions describes the motions of the soul brought about by something or someone. If my daughter sees a bug, she shrieks in fear. Or if we mention the opposite, falling in love. A man beholds the loveliness of a particular woman. Or we maybe sit at the ocean's shore and gaze out on its vastness. Or look out over the Grand Canyon. We are then moved by creatures in his creation. This is what it means to have passions. And so this second way that I'm using the term Passionate prayer is to mean that our prayers are prayers of creatures. Our prayers are prayers of people who have body parts and passions. In other words, our prayers in some ways are the means by which we as creatures experience change. And so our prayers are passionate in two ways. First, our prayers are passionate in the sense that they are both intense petitions, intimate longings, requests. And they're also, second, our prayers are passionate in the sense that our prayers, which are gifts, are prayers that change us, that move us. Prayers that draw us. In Romans 8, Paul begins by addressing the sufferings in this present world. Creation itself was subjected to corruption. The text says that the creation itself is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. In order that one day it would be free from its bondage and the glory of the children of God would be revealed. And then Paul says, and not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. That is, there is this longing to be freed from this body of death. To be freed from the corruption of sin. The hope that one day we will be given the redemption of our bodies. And ultimately that one day we would be adopted as sons. then Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there is this type of longing for something that we do not have. We are hoping and waiting for it with patience. We are waiting for the day that we would be transformed. For the day when, as when 1 Corinthians 15 says, we shall be changed in a moment. And the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. It's in this hope that we pray, that is, that we're groaning inwardly to be set free from the corruption of sin, to be conformed to the image of Christ. So as we pray to the same end, Lord, conform me to the image of your Son. Father, make me more like Christ, O God. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And as we pray these prayers, Paul gives us For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the very thing we're longing for. The very thing that we, we desired. To be conformed to the image of his son. And it's, it's promised to us. And so Paul here is telling us that God... The unmoved mover, the unchanging changer. He is, that God has predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. And what is more, that God is accomplishing our conforming to the image of his son through our hope-filled prayers to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One author writes, how are we transformed into the image of Christ? By beholding the glory of the Lord who causes us to behold the glory, this glory, the Spirit. We become what we behold. In other words, God as this immutable, impassable, unmoved mover, this God is moving us, changing us through our prayers as we behold the glory of God, as we we trust God, as we submit to his will. And even when we're ignorant of his will, the Spirit himself knows and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This God himself who cannot be changed, who has predestined us to change, to be conformed to the image of Christ, is in fact changing us as we pray in hope. And this is in accordance with his unchangeable will. Consider Matthew 6. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 13. Lord's Prayer. Earlier, Corey alluded to the the, the version in, in Luke. In Matthew 6, Jesus starts with telling us how we ought not to pray. And he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. What an amazing comfort that we don't have to pray with empty phrases or or religious lingo. We we, we pray in a way that realizes that we are children of God. Jesus tells us, don't be like them. Your father, you're, you're his children. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Think about that. The unchangeable God knows what you need before you ask him. So we don't have to worry as we pray. We we don't have to worry that we will have to convince God to answer our prayers. We don't have to remind him of what we need. That even if we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the spirit himself intercedes with us, for us, with groanings too deep for words. What an amazing comfort. And then in verse 9, Jesus gives us a model of how to pray. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So right off the bat, Jesus calls us to behold the Father's glory. To hallow his name. To conform our minds then to the will of God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See that even in prayer, we're being changed by the unchangeable God. In the model that Jesus gives us to pray, we're being encouraged to behold his glory. We're being encouraged to pray that God's unchangeable will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then once we are In prayer, beholding the glory of God, submitting to his will, being changed in that way, then we ask God to provide for our needs. Because then we will not be asking as people who are not being conformed to the image of Christ. But as people being conformed to the image of Christ in prayer, we ask, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are moved by this unmoved mover. We are changed by the unchangeable God. And it is by his unchangeable and impassable will that we who are changeable are conformed to his image, the image of Christ. As we behold his glory and as we submit to his will. And so brothers and sisters, in light of this passage, I encourage you to pray. Romans 8 says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. That You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Of God. And as children, I encourage you to pray, to behold the glory of God, to submit to His will, to be moved that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. And we come to you by your Spirit. Oh, Father, we are amazed at you. You are unchangeable. There's no shadow of turning with thee. Oh, but Father, you have made us changeable so that we might be conformed to the image of your son, and even that we might be conformed to the image of your son in prayer. Oh, Father, would you draw us, encourage us, work in us to boldly come before your throne? To boldly come, to, to call out to you, to have confidence. That your will is unchanging and therefore our prayers according to your will will be answered. But Father, thank you for this gift. We thank you in Jesus' name.